You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. The following live performance of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe was performed on September 12, 2009 in New York City at the first Northeastern Conference of Science and Skepticism hosted by the New England Skeptical Society and the New York City Skeptics. How many of you listened to the Skeptical Guide to the Universe? Well, I'm not surprised at that because uh, they claim 65,000 weekly listeners of the podcast. They are the leading skeptical podcast out there and over 10 million downloads since 2005. So let me begin with Jay Novella. He is a skeptical satirist who lends his unique wry perspective on all things wacky and weird. He creates and maintains the internet technology for the group. Jay is sort of the comic, part of the comic relief and the voice of every man. Evan Bernstein is a co-host and is the producer and co-host of the Skeptic Guide 5x5 weekly science podcast. He serves as the Connecticut chapter chairman of the New England Skeptical Society. He's also a technical advisor for the official Ness Investigations and has been an active participant in the skeptical movement since 1996. <laughs> Speaking of comic relief... Rebecca Watson is the founder of Skeptic.org, an online magazine focused on women in critical thinking. Her articles and essays have appeared online and in newspapers and magazines across the United States. Her daily ramblings can be found at Skeptic.org slash blog. And she occasionally poses in Skeptic pinup calendars. And if you brought yours, she'll be happy to sign it. Rebecca Watson. Bob Novella is co-founder and vice president of the New England Skeptical Society. He's written numerous articles that are widely published in the skeptical literature and has a special interest in physics and astronomy, their abuse by pseudoscientists, and methods of self-deception. Please welcome Bob Novella. And finally, last but not least... Steve Novella is an academic neurologist at the Yale University School of Medicine. In addition to being the host of the SGU podcast, he is the president and co-founder of New England Skeptical Society. He's also the author of Neurological uh, Blog, a popular science blog that covers news and issues in neuroscience. And that was just last week's episode. Uh, Dr. Novella also contributes every Sunday to the Rogues Gallery, the official blog of SGU, every Monday in Skeptic Blog, and every Wednesday to Science-Based Medicine, a blog dedicated to issues of science and medicine. Please welcome the lead host of SGU, Steve Novella. <laughs> Skeptics Guide to the Universe. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. We love holding live shows. It's great to see a nice full audience. Uh, we actually have a, a special guest who will be joining us as a, a guest rogue for our live show, uh, Professor Richard Wiseman. Richard, welcome. Now, Richard Wiseman is a psychologist, and he runs a popular blog as well as a new podcast. He is the author of many extremely popular books, including Quirkology, uh, and has produced a number of YouTube videos, including some that have gone viral, which is what we like, like the, uh, I think the color-changing card trick is your most popular one, is that correct? The uh, color-changing card trick is uh, up to about four million views now, so um, if that's just one person clicking on it constantly, thank you uh, for that person. 
I'd like to point out that Richard is the only one who walked out prepared with a banana. <laughs> I have this comedy it. banana here. Um, so if anyone's not finding it funny, just put this in your mouth and uh, force your face into a smile. So I love British humor. <laughs> we we ha- always have to have some British person on our show for now. <laughs> so this is the, the first Nexus conference. You guys like that acronym? It took us weeks to come up with that. Uh, but this is the second annual Perry DeAngelis Memorial Live SGU show. Every year we have to remember our dear friend Perry. Um, as I know I've said before, Perry was the one who came up with the idea of, hey, let's get together and run a skeptical society, you know, because there wasn't one in the New England area. Literally, our presence here is due in no small part to him, and he was a, a critical member of the SGU. It definitely brought a unique perspective and personality to the show that people immediately connect with. I, we still get emails. Uh, you know, it's been two years since we lost our friend, and we still get emails from people who are going back, listening through the shows, or just discovered us, and are listening to them in order, and they get Perry. They totally connect with him, and they understand, they could see his personality coming through, through the podcast, uh, and they sort of experience the loss over again. So, we're going to go through a few news items. The first one is the recent interview between Charlie Sheen and President Barack Obama. Did anyone, mm-hmm. anyone hear see, about this? this hear week? about that interview, which actually never took place? Yeah. Um, it, actually, it took place in, in, in Charlie Sheen's mind. Yeah, it yeah. took place in his mind. Yeah. Uh, it's also on this blog called uh, Prison Planet. Anyone know Alex Jones? Radio, yeah, right? You know, 9-11 truther <laughs> of, of some fame. So what Charlie Sheen did to commemorate in his own mind, the tragedy of what happened on 9-11 is uh, he sat down and wrote a little, well, let's say it'd be an occurrence, say uh, how it would be if he were to have 20 minutes to sit down with President Obama so that he could tell him and he could present him with the facts of 9-11 and so that President Obama could really get to the bottom of what really happened that day. And, uh, you know, basically what it is is just an exercise that uh, Charlie went through to bring up the same old points, nothing new. It's all been hackneyed and pulled apart and, uh, and you know, thoroughly debunked, especially by skeptics who over the years have done an excellent job of uh, keeping people like, you know, Charlie Sheen, Alex Jones, and their likes. It's, you know, just this dialogue. And if you go to Prison Planet, you can actually, prisonplanet.com, you can actually read it. It's so obviously scripted. I was reading it before he revealed that it wasn't, didn't happen. I didn't figure it really did. But it's reads, it's so obviously scripted when you read it. I mean, it was, I don't so know. Obama I thought it was actually his, uh... spoke, he spoke back. That's like yeah, kind of, yeah. Yes. He wrote Obama's he wrote end of the yeah. conversation. Yeah. Basically wrote a play. Yeah. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of like having God talk back to you. That's like... <laughs> I thought it was Charlie Sheen's best work since Hot Shots Part Two. <laughs> Personally speaking. And his worst, all but at the same time. His main point seemed to be that there are members of the 9-11 Commission who are now saying that the, the official version of events as laid out in their report is not accurate. Right. Now, the, here's the thing. This is, again, very typical of conspiracy theorists. Sure, there are people who think that the Bush administration are whitewashing some of the details of 9-11, probably to hide the fact that they screwed up, you know, that this happened on their watch, and mm. maybe they didn't respond optimally to the events as they were unfolding, and certainly they didn't prevent it from happening. That's what the 9-11 commissioners are talking about, especially you know, those that are, are, are in the Democratic Party who are saying, hey, we really needed to go after the Bush administration for their failure about this. But he is throwing that out there as if they're saying that it was an inside job 
job and the, you know, the Bush administration orchestrated 9-11. That's the implication he's leaving out there. And that's, again, a very typical conspiracy kind of strategy of making something appear more sinister than it is and whether, rather than providing evidence that something actually happened, just trying to make it seem like there's some mystery. And then they want to fill the mystery with, of course, their paranoid conspiracy thinking. Right? Yeah, and at the same time, he also goes, in addition to all that, he goes back and he brings up the whole thing about how World Trade Center building number seven could not have possibly collapsed as a result of this terrorist attack. It had to be a planned implosion. That's where the CIA had headquarters or their offices or, so, or some such thing. And if you look at this side of the building, you can see there's hardly any damage. It's the same old stuff. But Evan, he's clearly a structural engineer. <laughs> no, no, he yeah, well, played he play, one, yeah, he I think, in one, Two yeah. and a Half Men. I don't know. <laughs> I've never actually seen it. One and a half brains. Um, but he, do you remember the popular mechanics report that came out years ago? Basically gave you the, the gist of what actually went on from an engineering standpoint and how. The gist from NIST, right. Yeah, and how, and how it all, all went down. I mean, you know, apparently Charlie Sheen and Alex Jones and all these people, and there's a whole list of celebrities that, you know, have questions about 9-11. They, they totally ignore this. And they ignore these uh, facts of science, and it just doesn't play into his uh, into his nice little script that he wrote here. Did well, he have Obama say anything interesting, or was it all kind of like, "Yes, I agree"? Actually, no, no, Obama actually, came across as slightly rational in it. <laughs> Sorry. Like, I don't know. Yeah. He can't even do that right. He can't even set yeah, up a, an like, appropriate. Oh, Charlie, target. you're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Can I feel your bicep? <laughs> I love your hot shards part, dude. <laughs> Oh, Charlie. Charlie bit me. bit my finger, Charlie. (laughs) Um, uh, But the other thing that they do is that they they cherry pick. Oh, yeah. And and this actually came up at DragonCon last weekend. Uh, Rebecca was on a panel with Adam Savage. And there was a a, a ambush question, right? The 9-11 truther asked a question about the nanothermite discovered in New York City. And, of course, you know, you get thrown a question like that without preparation, you know, you don't know what the hell they're cherry picking. So nobody knew what the answer was that he was specifically asking. But I had a week now to look it up and, and try to the find out. The study that he... The study. And the what, it, what it is, is um, they found not nanothermite, but a chemical that could result from nanothermite. And it turns out the same chemical could also be found in melted computers, which there was an estimate of there was maybe... <laughs> Like 10,000 computers probably melted down in the middle of the, of the towers, so that probably has something to do with it. But again, if you don't know that factoid off the top of your head, it's hard to feel those questions. Or Steve works for the Bush administration. <laughs> Nobody knows it. Yeah, our, our answer on the panel at the time was just, you know, if you've got evidence, show us. But there's been no new evidence in right. eight years Go away. Sorry. Because his question was specifically, do you feel that there's any bias in the skeptical community against hot political issues? And then he brings up this paper in a peer-reviewed journal. And we all just look at each other, and Adam Savage goes, I detect a little bit of bias in the question. (laughs) (laughs) And then we basically shot him down. Now, um, you know, our good friend Perry was, this was one of the topics he felt most passionately about. You know, Perry was a big patriot, certainly of this country, and he took great exception to uh, 
the 9-11 truthers and the Charlie Sheens of the world and so forth. And Rebecca, when you said, you know, just, you know, when, go, go away. Yeah, that would be nice if these people would go away, but it's because of people like Charlie Sheen and a few other people that I have listed here. Rosie O'Donnell, Michael Moore, Sharon Stone, Martin Sheen, Ed Asner, Ed Blakely Jr., David Lynch, Most Def, Harry Belafonte, Woody Harrelson. The list goes on. There are hundreds of these people out there that are perpetuating or trying to perpetuate the mythology behind 9-11, and it's because of the work of skeptics that have largely kept these people uh, at bay, and we've beat them off with sticks, and imagine how much worse this would have become in our culture uh, if it wasn't for us, you know, the skeptics doing, uh, doing the hard work. James Brown was a 9-11 truther? No, Jane, James Brown. Oh, it's not James Brown? No, no, James oh, Brolin. <laughs> that did not sit right with me. James Ow! Brolin. Let's build this cat. Wow! <laughs> Get back. Uh, the M- list Eminem goes on is on. on. That's Eminem, though, right? Yeah, Eminem's on that Man, list. Man, he's a brightly burning torch, that guy. <laughs> Quantum amnesia. You, you know this one's for Bob, right? <laughs> yeah. There's a very interesting... Uh, Discussion in the physical review letters, uh, a physicist at MIT, Lorenzo Maccone, a nice Italian boy, is saying basically that the arrow of time, that we've all heard of, gla- you know, when you drop a glass, it breaks, or when you have a, co- a cup of coffee, it kind of gets, it gets hu- cool, it doesn't get warm. He's saying that th- those events also happen the opposite way. So he said that there are events that happen when coffee will get, will get cool or a glass will unshatter itself. And he said that he, do, he did this to try to resolve this mystery of the arrow of time, uh, which, is the, which is the idea that at the, at the subatomic level, the law of physics are agnostic to time. time can, the laws of physics can apply going forward or backward in time. It, it, they make perfect sense. But when you scale that up to the macro world, it doesn't make sense because you never see a glass unbreaking or, or anything like that. So his attempt to try to understand that was to invoke this, this, weird, this weird hypothesis that he was coming up with. Now, we've all heard of entropy second law of thermodynamics, at the macro world, time has an arrow and things... Bob, when you say time has an arrow, do you mean it's moving in a direction? Right, only one direction. At the macro scale, entropy kind of explains the arrow of time. Um, Basically, uh, you know, like like a gas expanding, a gas has so many different disordered states that chances are it's going to be in one of those distorted disordered states instead of an ordered state. So his idea is pretty bizarre. He says that when a human observes something, like, say, um, a glass breaking, he says that the, your memory kind of gets quantumly entangled with this thing. And, that's, and, and so you could actually observe it. You see this thing happen, but because of the quantum entanglement, when it gets disentangled, it disappears. So our memories are forming, and then they're wiping all day, every day. We're seeing these bizarre things. Now, uh, I, guess, uh, I don't understand. I'm a psychologist, and so I'm thinking, is he mad? Yeah. <laughs> that's the word that's going through my head. It's, it's a kind of bizarre hypothesis, and the big problem that I have with it is that if you, I don't know if you're familiar with quantum entanglement. Basically, when particles are entangled, they share something that distance does not cannot get rid of. They could be millions of light years away, and they're, and they're still entangled in some way, such that you can't describe one fully without, res, without resorting to, this, to the other thing. But these are quantum events. These aren't things that really happen in the, in the macro world, because it's called decoherence. So I'm not sure how he can invoke quantum entanglement for, for the human mind. That's the biggest problem I have with it. Another, the biggest problem I have with it, though, just not to cut you off, is that it seems like an a kind of a bizarre solution to a non-problem, you know. When you think about it, 
So what he's saying is, yes, sure, at the microscopic level, subatomic level, every process is reversible. Anything that can happen can unhappen, right? There's no way, like, chemical reactions can go in both directions. Energy and matter can transform. Everything can happen in both directions. So why does it always seem to only happen in one direction when it's it comes statistics. to entropy? Yeah. It's all statistics. Right, but what I think, it's like there's no reason in physics why every air molecule in this room won't spontaneously go into this cup, right, into this. It can happen. There's nothing in the laws of physics that says it, that says it cannot happen. It's just really unlikely. And you, so unlikely that you would have to wait longer than the age of the universe for, on average, for it to happen. So it essentially doesn't happen. So there's, it's the statistics of enormously large numbers of things, right? You have so many air molecules, the probability of them all deciding to go into, into the, the space in this, in this jar at the same time is just infinitesimal. So same thing with entropy, right? There's no reason why a, co a cup of coffee can't spontaneously get warmer than the, root, the air that surrounds it. It just doesn't happen, and it's never going to happen because that would require and the same kind of probability as all the air you know, going into the corner of the room. So it's actually a non-problem when you think about it that way, and his solution just seems really bizarre. Yeah. Like, time's <laughs> going backwards, so we're forgetting whenever anything that had reverse entropy occurs. Okay, is that testable? Can we do a test? Yeah, if if Bob, not, then it's useless. Right? Bob just said, though, on, on the macro level, we're not subject to the... The, the physics of the micro level, right? Right. So, okay, so I just nullified this guy's research. Yeah, uh, the, uh, perhaps, perhaps, <laughs> although Jay, when you Jay do entropy, quantum mechanics, though, I have to say I don't understand it well enough right. to, to confidently say that for, for reasons of quantum mechanics, it's not possible. It may make perfect mathematical sense, <laughs> but I, uh, if, unless, he, unless it makes a prediction that's different than... Right. The world as we thought it was, it's, it's actually one of those not even wrong, you know, situations yeah. where it just doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah, if your whole science depends, depends on an event that then goes back in time and gets undone, how do you possibly test any, test that? You can't possibly test that. This guy's gonna have trouble if, if he can form an experiment to test this because it's, it's such a bizarre experiment. And from what I can tell from research, a lot of physicists are, don't, just aren't buying this from him. One guy, I'll, I'll give one quote. This is Hugh Price. And he's the head of head of the Center of Time at the University of Sydney. Imagine being the Center of Time. He's like Time Bandits or something. Is he is he Father Time? Is he Doctor Who? Doctor what now? Hugh Price. His name is H U W. Has anybody come across? How do you pronounce that? Is it Hugh H U W? How do you pronounce that? Hugh. He is Doctor Who. Yeah. So. So his argument is, is basically this. He says, I quote, the proposal to explain the thermodynamic error in terms of the quantum effects of observers has an obvious flaw. He says, it doesn't explain why all observers have the same orientation in time. Why don't some observers remember what we call the future and accumulate information towards what we call the past? So there's lots of different objections. This, this is one of them. I have a problem with the whole quantum entanglement thing. So, so it didn't even solve the problem. It just backed it up a step. It didn't even solve it. Right, he's basically trading right. one mystery for another mystery. Right, right. So. so if he's head of time, how many, how often does he get an email that just says, what time is it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and another one goes, and now? <laughs> Why don't we all send him those emails? <laughs> and or if now? he changes the time on his computer, the time on my computer changes. <laughs> yeah, that would, yes. He has an auto-reply set. So that's awesome. <laughs> he's good. So just tying this in with the previous story briefly, are, are you saying the, the reverse time thing, that's potentially... The twin towers could go back up. Yeah, but it, maybe it already did, but we just forgot. Yeah, I, I would have remembered that. I, I would have. Yeah. Or if it does, you have to just wait a few trillion years, and it might happen. But the weird thing is, Charlie Sheen would still be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Rebecca, we all love you very much. <laughs> Aw, I love you too, Jimmy. I have to sit between these guys. <laughs> so, Hulda Clark passed away a few weeks ago, early in September. She is, or was, I get to say was now, she was probably one of the biggest and most dangerous quacks in the history of the world. Seriously, this woman is personally responsible for the deaths of, of at least hundreds of people. In, in all due humility, she came out with a book, The Cure for All Cancers. Oh. There it is. Right. Uh, you, get, you know, this is a huge red flag. Whenever anyone says that I can cure everything, right, Whatever, even if it's just all cancers or or of anything, and everything is caused by this one thing, you know they're, they're a quack. There's, because that, that's just not the way the, our biological systems and medicine works. There are many, many different types of things that cause disease and dysfunction and disorders. So Steve, there's, there's never you, any one cause for anything. Didn't you get an email from somebody saying that, that modern Western doctors kind of like overstate the, the efficacy of their practice? Yes. And, and then, of course, she was, she was, she was supporting a book that says the cure for all cancers. Talk about an overstatement. Yeah, yeah, we oversell our treatments, but she has the cure for all for all cancers. But actually, it gets better than that because the sequel to that book was <laughs> the cure for all diseases. I mean, forget cancer. You know, she can cure everything. It has many case histories, though. Oh yeah, that's true. Though. Many, 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 many. She has several, many. several case histories, and she has kind of a bizarre. She had a bizarre theory that the liver fluke. An infection by this liver fluke is what was causing all disease. That I guess our bodies would function perfectly were it not for this one little liver fluke that was causing all of all of disease. And of course, she, you, the beauty of of inventing one cause for all disease is that you can then market your one cure for all diseases for all. And there it is, hey. the para zapper. It slices, it dices. The para it does look a little bit like an e-meter, yeah. So you could zap those liver flukes and cure whatever. So, you know, yes, there, she had case histories, which, of course, are just horribly um, selected and distorted. But there are numerous, numerous case histories of patients who went to see her because of her claims, you know, uh, and then delayed the proper treatment of their cancer until it was too late, until their, their prognosis had diminished um, sometimes to, the, to their death. So where did she get the letters after her name? It's a oh, PhD and ND. Well, she ND is, is not is, a doctor. Not a doctor. Not a doctor. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm a doctor, not a doctor. It's naturopathic doctor, <laughs> not a doctor. Pretty much the same thing. They build up a, a a group of followers, and then those followers go to bat for them whenever the authorities decide to crack down. Um, well, look at Kevin Trudeau, for yeah. instance. He yeah. sounds like he's another Hulda Clark where he sells natural cures. They don't want you to know about that guy. He's been beaten down by the FTC so many times. And the thing is, they find, they find him, you know, a hundred million dollars or something, and he's taken in like a billion dollars, so it's nothing to him. And the last judgment against him said he was no longer allowed to sell anything on TV ever. And someone wrote like a few weeks ago saying they just saw him on TV selling something. Stop it! Right. <laughs> well, he was giving away, wasn't he giving away his book or something? So technically not selling. He skirts the laws. These yeah, are, the, these the are wild, slick people. Right. Yeah. 
Well, that, that actually, he, he was taken in, the scam was that he gives you the book or sells it really cheap, but then the book doesn't actually have any of the secret cures in it. It just leads you to his website where you have to pay for the actual information. So that was the scam to skirt, to skirt the books. But they're, they're just, they're, they're always one step ahead of the law. That's, that's the unfortunate reason. Then they go to healthcare freedom. They really got the jargon down. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of the alternative medicine movement created some of the academic pseudo-legitimacy and a lot of the jargon that, you know, that the quacks then use. The, yeah, that's right. I, I, want, I need my academic health care freedom. Right? That's exactly right. So even though there may be somebody who's earnest and who's sincere and who's just, in my opinion, profoundly confused trying to promote unscientific therapies, they are handing the playbook to, to sometimes sociopathic charlatans or con artists who just you know, are happy to ride along with, with, with them. And they've been, unfortunately, ahead of the curve since I've been paying attention. And she's a, she got to the end of her life, died quietly, killing people with abject quackery. And the, the law was completely ineffectual in dealing with her. Anyway, enjoy the this rest guy. of the day. And, um... <laughs> this guy is... I can't even think of a good joke. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> got Nicholas Gonzalez. Anyone recognize that name? He's based right here in New York City. This guy is, uh, in my opinion, another notorious cancer quack. I, I see him over there, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> he, his, again, cancer quackery is always, in my opinion, one, among the worst uh, because it, you, know, you delay treatment of a, of a potentially fatal disease. The delay of treatment it really matters with cancer. It's not like they're treating back pain or something. You know, that's sort of a chronic, stable condition. So he got it into his head that, well, actually, he... he um, learned of this nutritional therapy program from, from others who had done it before him, but added his own wrinkle, this, en this uh, proteolytic enzyme therapy, right? So he adds coffee enemas and like 200 different you know, vitamins a day, papaya juice, and then pancreatic, you know, proteolytic enzymes, and that's his treatment for cancer. And he swore that case histories, again, gotta love the anecdotal evidence, case histories, patients did much better. He published a case series where he said that looking at one of the worst cancers, like pancreatic cancer, um, adenocarcinoma of the pancreas has an average survival of around a year. You know, about 98% of people are dead within a year. So it's bad. And that's even with current therapy. He was claiming, an, an, on average, a 17-month uh, survival, but with many people surviving three, four, five, or more years. An incredible claim, if true, would revolutionize the treatment of pancreatic cancer. But, you know, the problem was that, you know, real scientists didn't buy it because there was no plausibility to his claim. He didn't document his cases in a way that was compelling or that met, you know, any kind of standards. Uh, and for a long time, there was no, no study that was either prospective or, or controlled. There was some animal data, uh, but it was mixed. You know, some, in one study, the rats survived a little bit longer. Another one, they actually did far worse. So, this is a good example to, to review, like, what are the ethics of human research, right? If you're going to subject people to, to research, there are certain ethical standards that you have to abide by. One is that you've done everything you can in the lab and with animals to be reasonably sure that there's at least a good chance that patients are going to benefit more than they're going to be harmed by your therapy. And then you can do research to see if that's in fact the case. He hadn't even really gotten up to that point. But under pressure from people like Tom Harkin, you know, uh, some senators who are very woo-friendly, as we say, uh, the uh, NIH was pressured to fund a study looking at pancreatic adenocarcinoma, doing, comparing the Gonzalez treatment to standard therapy. This study took years to complete, 
And in fact, the study went completed four years ago, and the data is just now being made public, which is a complete scandal. They sat on the results of this study for four years. Now, we, this is the paper that was just published, and here are the results. So I'll give you the skinny. The median survival for people who were treated with standard therapy was 14 months. Treated with the Gonzalez therapy, 4.3 months. And they had a lower quality of life. Yeah, you know, the cherry on top to me is that these quack cures uh, aren't even nice. It's like, not only am I going to kill you sooner, but I'm going to make it as painful as possible. We're, let's do coffee enemas. Right. Like, yeah. no. And, <laughs> and some you, morphine in there. Right. Yeah, you spend your whole day making your meals and eating your pills. I mean, it's, it, it really consumes what is now your abbreviated life, and, and it ruins your quality of life. How, how do you run a study like that? Because presumably people aren't randomly assigned to those groups, are they? Well, normally you would randomly assign yeah, them. Yeah. However, they, could, they tried to randomly assign them in this study, and this is the primary weakness of the study, is that too many people refused to be randomized to standard therapy. They, oh, wanted, standard they therapy. wanted the Gonzalez treatment, the people who were attracted to this study. Oh, so they, they had to self-select. They, but then they said, all right, let's at least make sure that the two groups are comparable in every way possible. So they, normally you, you achieve that through randomization. But they said, okay, well, at least make sure that they're at the same stage, that they're the same you know, age, and um, that they're whatever, that, that all the variables that we know to check for are comparable. So the, it was a good study. And the results, first of all, the results are dramatic. Right? This is a dramatic, this is not a, you're not parsing 14 versus 13, 14 versus 4.3 months. Almost triple the survival in the standard therapy group. You know, you can't say that this is because the people who were self-selecting for Gonzalez were sicker. In fact, the concern at the beginning of the trial that it was the other way around, that people who were selecting for it may have had an advantage. And he was saying that too. The other, it's wonderful is that he set himself up, saying, he said, the, if, my therapy would have to be about three times as effective as standard therapy to really show a dramatic effect. And, you know, that the, the problem with non-randomization is there might be a selection bias in favor of his therapy. And now it's the exact opposite in that it was three times for their standard therapy. So he's done. I mean, this is, this is, this is a fatal, if this were a, a mainstream therapy not being promoted by a quack, it would be over. It would become unethical tomorrow to do this. And, but imagine, I still am trying to wrap my mind around the fact that they sat on this data for four years while he's happily promoting his therapy. He's still promoting it. Go to his website. There's no hint of this data, of this study. He's still promoting his anecdotal evidence. I went to the National Cancer Institute. They have a kind of a mealy-mouthed, you know, treatment of him. This has, they should have updated their website yesterday with this information. There are still people dying, you know, losing, you know, what, you lose 10 months of, of life, and which is precious. I mean, if you have a year to live, you know, losing that amount of time matters. And also that what those last four months that you have are spent, you know, cramming in nutritional supplements and getting enemas and, and cooking special meals. Why do they think that this therapy is going to work over conventional medicine? Why do they flock to it? What's the allure? Well, it's possible that they're, they're gullible fools. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, it's true. I'm sure if, if uh, you know, that maybe they've had friends who've had uh, very bad experiences with mainstream medicine. I mean, I suspect that the, that the mainstream group there probably don't have a good time uh, either. And, and so they're thinking, well, maybe there is something to it. Um, and also, I, I think people tend to be persuaded by case histories, mm -hmm. the, the sort of thing that I right. suspect he's presenting on the website and in the book and so on, because, you know, that, that these are numbers, and numbers aren't very persuasive, but an individual going, oh, well, it worked for me, 
you know, that, that can sway desperate people. So it's the, it's like the, the anecdotes that speak louder than statistics. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we know that. I mean, all the, the, the work on if you want to give, get people to give to charities, don't tell them about thousands and millions of dying people. Just present one dying child and you get about ten times as many donations. Yeah. It's exactly the same here. You know, we, we don't like numbers. Well, we do, but most people don't like numbers. Yeah. About sure 50% don't. <laughs> I don't like so, that. I don't know if this goes against staying in line with science, but maybe we should have more anecdotes with with conventional therapy. Well, we do try to present the the case histories of the woman who went for this therapy and then, well, it's ending with Holder Clark, and then her breast cancer was curable, now it's not curable, and she dies of that. So we do have the cautionary tales, the scary tales. But I, for whatever reason, they're just not as compelling. And I think that it, our experience is that people are lured more with the false hope. And there is, and Richard, back me up on this if you, if you agree, what, from what my reading, that there are psychological experiments that show that people are more um, concerned or more fearful of missing out on a benefit than they are on losing something they already have. That's why we play the lottery. We don't want to miss out on the opportunity to win. That's what these people present. The, the, the false hope they present is the lottery. It's the false hope to win rather than you may lose a few months of your life but they're not as concerned about that as, but what if I could be cured by this? I can't miss out on the opportunity to be cured, and that, I think, in the end is really what sucks them in. And you know what's scary? Like, like chiropractic, if enough people took this therapy and said they want it, the insurance companies would cover it. Right. right? Eventually, that's, that's the trend that we're seeing today. Perhaps. On the topic of negative anecdotes, I give a shout-out to um, whatstheharm.net. Um, Tim Farley is in the audience somewhere. He runs it. And... It's a really, it's a fantastic website, and Tim, Tim goes out of his way to point out that it is not evidence. If you are in a scientific argument with someone, do not go there. If you are in an emotional argument with someone, go there, because he catalogs how many people have died, been injured, lost millions of dollars due to various quack cures and pseudoscience. It's a really wonderful site. All right. Now, a bit of lighter news. Oh. Huh. Oh. A baby. Oh. That's, <laughs> that's Julia. That's Julia. That's my daughter, Julia. Oh. That's oh. a picture I carry in my wallet. And this is my segue to a, a bit that uh, Richard's going to talk about. Uh, I am. I'm going to talk about um, uh, my own work in a uh, sort of somewhat egotistical um, way. And this is work um, uh, we carried out to promote um, my own book. Um, <laughs> 59 seconds, uh, which has been a huge hit in the UK and is now coming out here in, in January. Um, um, Brandon House, huge. Um, but I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to. <laughs> I'm not here to plug that book. Um, I'm sorry, what book? 59 seconds. <laughs> out 1st of January. And, um, uh, and it's, it's fantastic. It, it really, it's. <laughs> It's fantastic that you're all here today to support uh, the, the movement. Is what I was about to say. So anyway, so, I'm sorry, so we you said it's out in when? Sorry, J January. First of January, and um, it will change your life in less than a minute. Um, <laughs> certainly, if you buy it, it will change mine uh, just equally as quickly. So, um, uh, so I'm very excited uh, about the book. And one of the, um, uh, the studies uh, in the book uh, is um, uh, the, the study that uh, the, the, the picture here uh, is relevant to. Uh, so I, I've, uh, I lost my wallet a little while ago. And I thought, that's interesting. What? Uh, I didn't actually think that's interesting. I thought, <laughs> I, thought I lost my wallet. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I didn't get it returned. And then I thought, that's interesting. What could I put in my wallet 
uh, to, to uh, increase the chances of, of getting returned. And so I thought I'd do an experiment. That's what I thought I'd do. So, because uh, there's no literature on that. Uh, it might surprise you to know. Um, and uh, so, so what I did, I, I bought uh, 200 wallets, and uh, I put different things in each of them. So, so they looked like normal wallets. We didn't have any money in it, because we, we had no money uh, to, to run the study. Uh, because it was spent it all on wallets. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Plus, it was being done to promote the book, so um, 59 seconds. So the... Um, uh, January. January. <laughs> Great book. Uh, the, um, so, so what we did was uh, we made them look like normal wallets, and then we put, uh, we put them into different groups, and we put different photos in, or different things in them. So one was a, a photo of uh, a baby. Uh, another was a photo of a, a very cute puppy. So we had an elderly couple, a very happy family. Uh, then we had a donor card, because so we thought maybe if the, um, uh, the owner looks like they're a kind person, then somebody will pick it up and, and, and uh, return the altruism. Uh, and then we, we dropped, I say we, I dropped uh, uh, 200 uh, wallets. I don't know if you ever tried uh, to drop 200. <laughs> I assume not, is my, is, is my guess. Uh, but try, try to drop 200 wallets. Very, very tricky, because you can't sort of drop them, you know, sort of 100 yards apart, because the public will get suspicious. <laughs> so you have to walk for about half a mile each time before you drop your wallet. And the public are really helpful. They're really helpful. So if they see you drop your wallet and you walk on, they go, excuse me, drop your wallet. And you go, back off, it's science. <laughs> they look at you like you're a bit odd. Uh, so, yeah, sorry. Uh, bicycle? Um, no, it wouldn't fit in the wallet. It was, um, <laughs> but it's, it's a good thought. Uh, yes. With the address. With the address, because then they can bring it back on the bike. Uh, so, um, uh, so anyway, so I dropped all these wallets, uh, and my favourite thing, and see, what you do is you then hang around your seat to see who picks up the wallet. And my favourite one was a policeman uh, who came along, picked up the wallet, opened it, walked over to a bin and put it straight in the bin. Uh, so... That was good. So I dropped all these wallets and then uh, waited for them to come back. I haven't actually got the percentages in front of me, but the, uh, the baby picture, I like this, um, outperformed even the puppy. <laughs> My money was on the puppy, uh, but the, uh, the baby picture outperformed the puppy. And so I think it's about, it was about 30 or 40% higher than any of the others. So uh, Richard, so you dropped the wallet yeah. and then you, you, you continue to walk away. I continued to walk away. Then the people the come, the crime, they, yeah. they pick up the wallet and they don't think, hey buddy, here's your wallet. They open it real quick. Yeah, well, I've gone by then. Okay. I've gone. So you take, you take so, so I drop and I run. Wait, can we act this out on the stage? <laughs> Sorry? Richard, you be Richard. Jay, you I'll be, be the wallet. I, I want to be the wallet. This is actually one of the wallets that we used. Um, I got it returned. Um, so I'll show you. Hold on a second. He's actually going to do it. <laughs> this will take about 59 seconds. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I noticed that he didn't look at the picture. Sorry? He didn't look at the bicycle or the picture. No, 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 no. no. Um, so uh, uh, so, so that's, that's what we did. Uh, we did that 200 times. And um, so it came back. It was very exciting. And then we found it. So, so, what, so now, uh, I don't have any kids, uh, but I've got a picture of a, a baby in my wallet. Uh, so the reason for this is because I was being interviewed by journalists about the study. I thought, I know what they're going to say. They're going to say, have you got a picture of a baby in your wallet? And if I haven't, it looks bad. So I put a picture of a baby in my wallet. So here's the story, which is you're probably going to cut out, I suspect, for the podcast. Um, We're going to cut all of this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quite rightly so. Uh, so um, 59 seconds. So the, 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 yes, out in January. And so the, um, uh, the BBC phoned me up, and they said, will you come in and talk about the, the wallet study on, on Breakfast News? 
So I said, that's fine. And then when I got in in the morning, I thought I was talking to the same researcher who'd spoken to me the night before, but the teams had changed. So I didn't realize she knew nothing about this at all. So I opened my wallet uh, to get some taxi receipts out, and she saw the baby. And she goes, oh, that's a really cute baby. Is that yours? And I said, no, it's just one I downloaded from the internet. (laughs) (laughs) I have never seen a look on a woman's face. (laughs) In her mind, she just kind of encountered, you know, pedo and proud. Uh, So so then I had to sort of backtrack. Oh, no, no, it's the item. Oh, dear. Um, So it was a much shorter item than uh, than I anticipated. Um, But that's that's what I did. So if if you do a new wallet returned, uh, then uh, then put a baby in it, and it will definitely, definitely get returned. Um, I have a question, actually, about the donor card. Yeah. What was the organization? Because I'm thinking if it was like Nambla or something, <laughs> that could have affected oh it. God. Speaking of pedos, I know. I, I, I can't remember what it was now. I think it was, um, uh, it wasn't, it was, actually, it was a donation to charity card. That's what it is. But that one, I think it was the th- uh, third uh, developing world um, ch- uh, charity card, uh, that one actually bombed. You're better off not putting anything in your wallet than that. That was worse than the control group. Well, I never give to charity, so it's not a problem. Yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> Male or female baby doesn't matter. Did you go into that detail? We didn't. I mean, we, we were 200 wallets because we needed enough sort of statistical power. We only had the, um, the sort of six groups in it. But you could actually go into quite a lot of uh, detail. Yeah, what's what the peak age? Is six months, you think? Where's the, pe- the peak cuteness? Uh, that, that's right, yes. There, yeah. there must be something. There's got to be a sweet spot um, right, right. on it, yeah. That, and, I thought that's where it was, right? <laughs> um, but we, we, we were thinking that there probably would be a sex difference if we put a very attractive woman, very attractive guy, because then they think they're going to meet right. that person and so right, on. Right, then they right. get me. And... Um, <laughs> My favorite thing, and uh, we never published this actually for various reasons, we wanted to look at the effect of people's surname on their lives. And so we uh, went through the telephone book and uh, we got two groups of people and we sent them all a letter that said, oh, um, uh, thanks very much for helping me out the other day when I needed to borrow five pounds. Here's the five pounds back. Um, I kind of trawled through the, uh, the, the, the telephone directory, so I hope I've got the right person. So basically the idea was you'd get this letter and you'd think, well, actually, I didn't help you out the other day, but here's a five-pound note. And the question is, do you return that, that five pounds or do you hold on to it? And I had two groups of people. One was the surname uh, was always Angel, and the other was the surname Crook. <laughs> and the, my favorite reply came from the very first Crook, uh, who wrote back and said, uh, yes, it was me in the street. Thanks for the money. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the, I want to talk about this very briefly, actually. Rebecca didn't want to talk about it at all. But it's boring. We all know that the, uh, the Kepler satellite is, out, is orbiting the Earth now, and that has the power to look at distant suns, distant stars, that are with enough detail, enough precision, that it can detect the effects of, of a planet revolving about the sun in, the, in roughly the plane that we're looking at it from the Earth. And the purpose of that is to find planets around other stars. And it's, it's already been proven that it can detect planets that we knew were there. We said, okay, let's see if this technique will detect those planets. Well, recently an astronomer did some calculations, and he figured out that the, it's actually sensitive enough to detect moons around exoplanets, exomoons. So this hasn't been actually demonstrated empirically yet, but he says that Kepler should be strong enough to do this, and specifically, it would be able to detect an Earth-sized planet orbiting a Saturn size and density an Earth-sized moon orbiting a Saturn size and density planet, hence the picture. Which How far out, though? Well, yeah, um, 
at the distances of the stars that are being looked at with, with Kepler. So that there, yes, there's a limit to how distant the star could be. I don't know what that is. But that's it would certainly in the ones that it's surveying, it might actually pick up an exomoon rather than mm -hmm. just exoplanets, which okay. is neat. A few points about the story. One, just calculations. Right. Two, no actual exomoons have been discovered. Call me when it happens. Three, the story has nothing at all to do with popular 1990s cartoon Exosquad. <laughs> That's true. It's boring. That's true. Sorry. That's true. What was that one you wanted to talk about? I wanted to talk about a woman falling to her death while ghost hunting. Well, tell us about it. No. <laughs> no, you want to talk about exomoons. Let's talk about exomoons. That's on. why we don't do too many live shows. <laughs> all right, let's talk about exomoons then. So, Steve, um, can, Kepler, can Kepler resolve a planet orbiting a star? I would think that it probably couldn't, but it could resolve an Earth-sized planet orbiting a Saturn or Jupiter-sized planet. Is that, is that correct? No, it, it, it can do a star. It can, re it can resolve an Earth-sized planet revolving around a star directly. Yep. That's the hope, is that, it's go that we're going to find the first Earth. the wobble. The yeah, the no, it's actually it's not, it's, not, it's not the wobble gravity method. It's the transit method. It's the dip in the light as, ah. it, as it goes around. Okay, that's yeah. right. So it absolutely can. And, and probably within two or three years, we will, we will have some Earth-sized planets. I thought it was to detect a planet, it's from the wobble or the change in light. But to detect a moon, it's so small, they can only do it by the change of light. But, but there are two different methods for detecting exoplanets. There's the, the wobble method, where you're looking at the gravitational effect on the star of the planet. And then there's the transit method, where you're looking at the light output from right. the star. The Kepler is all about the light, it is right. the light level. Okay. It's using the transit method. I feel like I, you're I getting short with me. Isn't there a third <laughs> method? I'm skeptical. Isn't it obvious, though? Look, you can see it. <laughs> it's right there. But, no, actually, that's a good point, because there's a third method, a direct visualization. Haven't we done that once or twice? Guys, just look. We covered that in the news story, I thought. Yeah, right. But that's visualization by processing the, the light coming from. Yes, the the, the, but it's only been done like just once or twice. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a third. It's a third method. Right, but it's that's not one that the Kepler is using. That's though. all I'm saying. Right. Okay. It would have right. been better if they were sexo moons. Sexo moons. Yeah. <laughs> Steve called me up two days ago. We're going back and forth with news items. He calls me up and says, "Jay, what do you think of great tits?" <laughs> And, and that's I, the level of discourse behind yeah. the scenes at SGU. That's how we started the conversation. He's like, you want to talk about great tits at, at the live event? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it, this is a bird story. Perry just screamed from beyond the grave. Yeah. <laughs> and this also is Bob's uh, crazy news heading of the week. Yeah. Great, great tits have been discovered eating bats' brains. <laughs> Can't top that. <laughs> Every part of that headline is Never saw is that coming. Bats have been reported eating small birds, but there's never been a report of small birds eating bats. And they're actually, what they're doing is, it, this uh, study was done in Germany. This researcher at the Max Planck Institute of Ornithology, Peter Estock, first saw this in, uh, in 96. So that's a pipstrel bat, and those little birds are actually flying into their caves when, when they're just waking up. Or, or hibernating, pretty much. The bats get very cold. I thought this was very interesting, but the, the bats are only a degree above the ambient temperature, which I just I don't huh. understand why that is. But yeah, it's it's interesting though because never disturb bats because I, I remember reading that just the act of waking them up, they use enough energy, metabolic energy, that they just die. They can't get back to sleep. So it's uh, don't anybody tell the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> hold, hold on a minute. Oh yeah. Hold on, hold on. An animal exists where when it wakes up, it uses so much energy it dies. Yeah. 
Well, I think if it's premature, it's yeah, like it, it can't feed. It's, it's not going to feed because it's not the time. It's not the season. Oh, it's not it it wakes up. Right. You wake it up in the middle of its hibernation. It may not be able to get through the rest of its cycle without right. dying. Oh, I see. Okay. I it only has enough energy to barely get through its hibernation cycle, and that part of the conservation of the energy is cooling its body down as much as possible. In fact, there was another unrelated news item that showed that. Birds do the same thing when they're when they're migrating. They lower their body temperature in order to conserve energy during their feeding episodes, so that they can fatten up quicker to make it through the rest of their migration. So cooling down seems to be a widespread strategy in the animal kingdom for preserving energy. But what what these birds are doing is is, they're, is really sneaky. They're 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 eating these bats' heads while they're asleep hibernating. <laughs> yeah, they're they're actually flying in. And in a lot of cases, they will pick up the bat and fly away with it. So they say that the bats weigh approximately five grams. And then here, and this is where I know the research is wrong, it says that the great tits only weigh 20 grams. Now, (laughs) I've seen great tits. And they're all larger than 20 grams. It's not about the size, Jay. It's the perkiness. (laughs) They are are very perky. (laughs) Well, Richard, anything? Uh, it's, it's not even worth saying anything, really, is it? It's, I'll get my hat. It would be like civilian bombing. You know, it's, it's, it's just too easy. Richard, have you ever held a couple of great tits? You see, there we go. Um, <laughs> I'm just curious. All right. It's the gaggiest tits breasts. That's the, uh, the gag. Um, I see, I'm not a Freudian, I'm not a Freudian um, psychologist, but if I were... I'd be worried. I would be. <laughs> I don't know, but Jamie and I were talking about this for an hour behind stage before. Right. Like, yeah. Speaking yeah. of, can I point out that I've been chuckling to myself this whole time because it's vulvic water and. <laughs> Not only that, this looks like a penis. I just think of. Point out his penis. That's <laughs> the trifecta of sexual just, just innuendo. For right? listeners on the radio on the, on the podcast, I was holding up a banana at that point, so I now. <laughs> realize the ambiguity. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, Richard. <laughs> All right, Jay, you done with the tits? Another 40 years, yeah. All right. Right. <laughs> right. In case we hadn't plugged Richard enough at this point in the show, um, Richard actually does write a, an excellent blog. I highly recommend it, and you can see how he's promoting his, what's that say, 59 seconds? That's his own long. book up there. Um, but this was uh, my cue to have you talk some more about your own research. I thought you were going to talk also to us about the Yale study. Yeah, yeah, right, thank you. Yes, I can do that. So the Yale study, uh, so when I write 59 seconds, is, uh, has, has two strands to it, uh, as we say in the book trade. Uh, it has one strand, which is um, the myths of self-help, all those things you're told that aren't true. And then the other is, is what can you do quickly that's got some sort of scientific backing uh, to it. And when I was going through some of the, the myths, uh, it was kind of fun to come across the, the Yale uh, motivation study, which you see everywhere. If you go into a bookstore uh, here and you pick up a self-help book, you'll almost certainly come across the, the Yale motivation study. And so the study is that uh, in the, I can't remember the dates now, because it, it kind of varies, but sometime in the, the, the past 50s, 60s, uh, whenever, uh, even the 70s, um, some researchers went in, they looked at uh, what we call the undergrad year at uh, Yale, and they asked them a very simple question. They said, do you want to know what you, you, you want to do uh, when, you, when you eventually grow up? And uh, only uh, 3% of the class knew that. They then tracked the class for 20 years, and they found out that 3% was actually earning 98% of the total income of the group. 
So it suggests that focusing early on uh, in, in terms of uh, career is, is a really good idea in terms of financial income. And you'll see that, that, that study everywhere. I did a Google book search for it, and about 2,000 books came up straight away, that study. And here's the fun thing. It doesn't exist. <laughs> it's never been run. I mean, it's a nightmare of a study to run, anyway, because it's a longitudinal study. Um, and so I was thinking, well, hold on a second. So I started to search for it, and other people have searched for it. And we have people gone to Yale and asked the people there. I've asked other so, uh, social psychologists to do that sort of work. No one's ever heard of it. It doesn't exist. It's a really good story, though. <laughs> you got to love seminal research that never happened. That, absolutely. Absolutely. So and it turns out Yale doesn't exist either. Yale doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> I knew it. Google Books doesn't exist. The whole thing <laughs> has been made up. Uh, so if you're a motivational speaker and you want to get people really fired up, you can come out with these sorts of, uh, these sorts of stats. And, and so I, I, this is why I think skepticism is, is so important. I mean, what, what amazes me about the self-help industry is it's just completely unregulated. So people are going over to those bookstores. They've got some sort of problem in their lives. It might be a serious problem. It might just be they're not very content and so on. And they're picking up books with advice in well, there's no scientific background. It's simply a practitioner going, well, this is a good idea. And some of them contain studies which don't even exist. Um, and, and, and so the, the, my stuff is about trying to get some science into the, the self-help. Um, but next time you, you hear the Yale study, it's sometimes referred to as from Harvard um, as well. Um, which does exist. Uh, that does exist. That one does. Um, then you can just point to the person and go, you idiot. <laughs> You ignorant slut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you idiot. Um, and people like you make me sick. That's what, that, that's what you should say. Um, so, so, yeah, so that was the, the kind of fun I had, tracking down these, these things that, that aren't true. And, and, but it is, it's kind of heartbreaking in a way. I mean, visualization, again, all these books. You know what we need? We need a, a self-help book that actually is based on the literature. Precisely. Exactly. But who's well, you could write call that? it like one minute or <laughs> a minute and 12 seconds. The 59 seconds thing um, is, is perhaps a slight overstatement, but um, what can you do? The, uh, so, um, so, you said, I mean, visualization, visualizing your perfect self. You know, you see that in all these self-help books. Go out and visualize. You want to achieve. Visualize your perfect self. Mm. A study after study after study shows, if you're in terms of motivation, an appalling thing to do. Because you visualize yourself doing well, the first setback comes along, and that's it. You just kind of give up. So if you want to achieve, you should visualize process, visualize what you need to do to achieve, not you achieving. Now, psychologists have known that for sort of 20 years. It's not in the public domain at all. And, and so part of my passion, uh, which is also behind the blog and so on, is, is getting that stuff out there because it's relevant to people's lives. And that's why we do the sort of science that I do and other psychologists, psychologists do. It's about getting it saying, this is what we found out. This stuff does actually work. Let's get it into people's lives. So that's, that's my kind of passion with this. So, Richard, Richard, people are visualizing themselves at the height of their goal. I've obtained, yeah. you know, like they're maxing out in their yeah, expensive so if, house and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, so, so an advice to students sometimes is imagine yourself being awarded an A grade for an essay. Um, or if you want to improve your career, uh, imagine yourself top of the, the, the corporate ladder. Or if you want to date uh, a beautiful woman, um, uh, then imagine yourself walking out on that thing. All of them, appalling things to do in terms of motivation. It will cheer you up. And of course, you, that's, yeah. that's the you. basis of The Secret, which is yeah. one of my own personal pet peeves. So I'm really hoping that part of your book tour includes going on Oprah, <laughs> so you can tell her, you are an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> or you, make you can me say what <laughs> Yeah, you can imagine me on Oprah uh, doing that, can't you? Um, <laughs> versus sitting there going, well, it might have something to it, but moving on to my yeah. book. Um, <laughs> Richard, have you heard about... Um, 
I've read quite a bit about visualizing doing some type of athletic skill like mm -hmm. skiing or whatever. And if there, there was some Olympian that did that when he was injured, and that actually did fire the same neurons. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, a, a visualizing the process, whatever it is you need to do to get there, is a good idea. There's, there's no doubt about that. Lots of studies have shown that. And, and that's a, a relatively fine-grained distinction that, that psychologists are known about. But again, you know, the public are just being badly served by this, this stuff. I always find it interesting when there's such a huge disconnect between the literature and what's actually happening in the real world. In fact, just the other day, I was having a conversation with some of my colleagues at, at Yale, that fictitious institution that I work at, and um, <laughs> we're, it was about how to best teach the medical students about evidence-based medicine. And what, what struck me and what we talked about is that the that our discussion was actually completely divorced from all of the evidence of how to teach and how to successfully, you know, we were arguing about how long the lecture should be and how, you know, and it, it came down to the fact that a lot of the, the lecturers, a lot of the professors who lecture want to lecture the way they want to lecture and not be informed by the evidence to show, which shows, you know, how to optimally teach people information and how they're going to absorb the information. And what we really need is like a, a working group to actually like do what you did with your book, comb through the literature and come up with the recommendations that this is what will optimize information transfer, you know, to to those students. But here, even at the, at, at Yale, where we're talking about how to teach evidence-based medicine, we were not taking an evidence-based teaching approach. Yeah, it's, it's, as a default, it's, it's one of my sort of things about skepticism is that we're very keen on explanations, and in fact, the mind is is very keen on mystery. So it's a huge motivator not to know something. It really gets on our nerves. Uh, and, and so um, a couple of days ago in the, the UK, Darren Brown's a mentalist and magician, um, said he's going to predict the national lottery and appeared to do that on, on television. Didn't give the solution. And everyone's a huge debate about how that's, that's now uh, actually happened. And, and so, of course, the mystery mongers, they've got it made because they just go, look at this anomaly, you know, and, and, and we're not quite certain of the explanation. People love that. I think in skepticism, we often say, here's the explanation, and that just closes it straight down for people. And mm -hmm. so part of the teaching thing, I think, can be to say, actually, here's something here. We're not going to tell you the solution to this. Go out and find it yourself. Right. And it really annoys people, and that's, <laughs> that's quite good as well, um, just in, in general. Like annoying so, people. Did yeah. Darren Brown say he was going to predict the lottery? He predicted that he would predict the lottery. And didn't he um, explain correct. it, yes. though? Yeah. Didn't he explain it the next day? Uh, <laughs> he gave an explanation. Yes, uh -huh. that's right, yes. Well, there's some debate about whether that <laughs> right. was the correct explanation. I mean, I, I watched it on new YouTube, and the, what I was looking for immediately was, did he reveal the numbers before they were shown or after? And he said that, I'm, by law, I'm not allowed to show the numbers before they're revealed by the Lottery Commission. Like, there you go. He didn't actually reveal the numbers that he picked. So I don't know what he did to make it seem like he did that, but he, you know, that's so there you go. But also, what's quite funny is that you, there's someone who says, I can predict the lottery, and you think, okay, go on TV and do it, versus buy a ticket. Right, 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 right. Um, <laughs> He's got plenty of money. He doesn't need your dirty lottery money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, speaking of annoying people... It's time for Science or Fiction. We'd like to do a science or fiction or live shows. Bob's getting a jump on it now, so <laughs> he'll be ready by the time you ask. As for our live shows, when we do science or fiction, what I'm going to do is I'll read the three items, which you can read them to yourself too, and then we'll sample the audience by applause to see which one you think is the fiction, and then we'll give you the expert advice from, from the panel, and we'll see if that influences your judgment. So here they are. Here are the three items. Number one. A new survey shows that in the last 20 years, the number of working scientists who have been contacted by journalists about their research has decreased by about 
Item number two, the Chemical Abstracts Service announced that on September 7th, it recorded its 50 millionth unique chemical substance. Item number three, research reveals that factors that predict recovery from the psychological trauma of 9-11 and similar events include less emotional control. So just to clarify, less emotional control predicted better recovery from the trauma of experiencing that event. So first we'll, we'll do the audience. So if you think that item number one about scientists and journalists is the fiction, if you think that's false, applaud now. Okay, if you think that number two about the chemical abstract service and the 50 millionth unique chemical substance is the fiction, applaud now. And item number three, if you think that less emotional control predicts good recovery from psychological trauma, applaud now. Okay, pretty close. I think one in three or maybe in a tie, a little bit ahead number two. So let's see what the panel thinks, Bob. We usually edit this part out. Yeah. <laughs> At first, number one didn't make much sense to me. Um, but with print kind of like in its death throes, from uh, at least a lot of people think it is. I, I think it makes sense that a lot of people are just like winging it on the web and not really interviewing as many people as uh, as they used to about research. It kind of makes sense to me. Um, number three, that kind of makes sense as well because I think that if you if you have less emotional control and just kind of experience your emotions and let them have at it, um, I think that would be healthier for you psychologically. So that kind of makes sense if you kind of just bottle it in and control your emotions. Uh, then I think it makes it's pretty obvious that that is probably a bad thing. So because of that, and the second one, 50 million, I'm going to say I'm going to say that is fiction. All right, Rebecca. I just like to imagine the people at the Chemical Abstracts Service like rolling over 50 million, everybody, yay! Hey. <laughs> Little cake. We'll have cake. Yeah. Um, so because of that, I'm going to believe that that's true. Actually, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm allowed to make my reasons. As for the first one, uh, that makes a lot of sense for the reason Bob mentioned, the fact that, um, I mean, every CNN, the Boston Globe, they all fired their science journalists, so um, there's nobody really to make the calls anymore. And ma but it makes so much sense that I suspect you've made it up. Uh, as for the last one, though, um, the idea of having less emotional control, predicting a better recovery from trauma, that goes against um, a lot of studies I've read that have shown um, that those like screaming therapies and things that were hot in the 70s and stuff were, are all bunk and they actually make recovery from physical trauma worse or like reliving the events is supposed to help you, but it really doesn't. So I'm thinking that that is actually the fiction. All right, Jay. So the first one, um, the only thing I'm questioning about that is the, the one about the journalists and the scientists and the scientists were surveyed and they were they were being questioned about how often journalists have been calling them about their research and so, and and I don't know I just feel like how could they get a, it's not accurate like I don't see that process being accurate it, it's definitely anecdotal it's not it's not like they're read, writing it down and keeping track of all that so I'm not too not too solid about the 50% thing but I uh, it's funny to see Steve like when we were doing this in person because he's like trying to maintain the poker face yeah. <laughs> which he doesn't have to do on the podcast so he's just like huh? yeah sure maybe. So uh, yeah, I could laugh at you when we're on my computer and you guys can't see me. Yeah. yeah. So with the, with the 50 million chemical substances, like what what would designate something as a chemical? 
right? So, so if you're going to change a chemical, like what, what are we changing now? The amount of, like, when you're making the molecule, right? So it's a distinct molecule you're talking about. <laughs> Back me up, you f- <laughs> It's a distinct molecule. It's a, you might say it's a unique chemical substance. <laughs> So if, they, if, they're, if they're making a, a minor change in that molecule, that's, that would be considered unique. <laughs> if, you th- if you think so. And you think that there's 50 million variations. They think that there is. <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Keep curling them. That works. <laughs> How could I comment on that? Okay. Move along. Think of the party. 50 million sounds like a shitload. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's not, it's not quite an ass load yet, but no, it is a shitload. Yeah. I think it's actually a metric shitload. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. I don't know. I'm, uh, whatever. Okay, so I'll just keep going. Um, and then this last one, so, so what we're talking about here is that people that were expressing their emotions more were recovering faster. People that were living through and thinking about it and not pushing it into the back of their mind. I think that makes an enormous amount of sense. They, you know, pushing it away and not focusing on it or thinking about it doesn't help you work it out. So I agree with that one. You read it. Uh, the, I can't comment on the middle one because I just have to say I don't know enough about it. Uh, so I'll say that the first one is the fake. Which one would that be? That would be the one with the scientists and the journalists. Thank you. All right, go ahead, Evan. <laughs> yeah, um, the 50% number seems about right to me. Uh, so uh, journalists contacting the scientists, decreasing 50%. I think that's accurate. Uh, yeah, I'm like Jay. I don't know what to make about the 50 millionth chemical substance. You know, sure, it's plausible. I mean, but I don't know. September 8th, maybe. I don't know. September 7th? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trying to trick us. <laughs> oh, it's no, never. They announced it on the 10th. <laughs> oh, gotcha. It's called gotcha journalism. Okay, so the 9 11. Um, Bob, you said you said the 50 million. Uh, That's what I picked, yes. Yeah, so I'm going to go with that one, too. <laughs> okay. Riding Bob's coattails. I'm going to ride Bob's coattails. So, Richard. Hmm. Um, I say the last one could be true. It depends how they measured it, because it won't actually predict actual recovery from trauma, but it will predict perceived recovery from trauma. So it depends how they've measured that one. That's my technical answer to number three. Uh, my answer number one is I have no idea. Uh, answer number two is 50 million. I mean, when do you stop? <laughs> when do you draw a line under it and go, enough is enough? We, we don't need any more unique chemical substances. We've got enough. Let's go and look for those moons that we could just look at and see using a normal telescope. Um, so I'm going, it's definitely, uh, actually this is slightly embarrassing. I do actually know the answer to this one, which is by a rather weird quirk of a thing. So the answer absolutely is definitely number two. Which is, what, what, what you, that's the uh, chemical substance one. Absolutely. It's I am fake. actually lying about definitely knowing the answer. Yeah. I, don't, I okay. don't know the answer. So, if I got this Yale study said so, right? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. So, yeah. Bob, Evan, and Richard think that the chemical substance is the fiction. Rebecca, you went with the psychology. No, yeah. And Jay, which one did you say? The, the first one. The journalist? Yes. Okay. So, with that advice, we're going to quickly survey the audience again. So, how many still think that number one is the fiction by the journalist? And how many think that the chemical substances is the fiction? Change a lot of minds. And how many think that the uh, psychological trauma is the fiction? 
That was right across the board. Identical. Right across the board. You sheeple. Dead even. So that evened it up. The the, the panel definitely convinced you that the that the million substance. Why don't you uh, have them raise your hands? Maybe we can get a greater. Because it's a, because podcast. it's a podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we could tell a- an audio podcast. All right. And this is what they do in front of you guys. You see what it's like. Just in terms of the, this whole mystery thing. So I think we actually want to know now. Yeah. We no, really I say want... we just end it. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> it doesn't matter to our lives at all. But we want to know because you set this up. So if you didn't tell us, how many, hands up, how many people would actually go away and find out the answer themselves? That's so that's about... unbelievable. How many, how many people would beat up Steve in the parking lot? <laughs> See? Uh, it's even more. That's a little hands. more. Yeah. A little yeah. more. Yeah. All right. Thank you for doing show of hands instead of yeah. applause. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, although interestingly, and, and uh, we've discussed this and people have brought this up to us, that the, the literature shows that when you tell people that something is wrong, they're actually far more likely three months down the road to remember it as being correct. Wow. Yes. Um, that you, you, so science or fiction causes a lot of problems. It does. People <laughs> remember the fiction as being correct, but you just have to suck that up. So if you with somebody who's really ugly... Just say, you're really ugly, and you're doing them a favor. Three months down the road, they'll think, I'm really good looking. <laughs> Just a thought. That's why I send you that email every day, Richard. Right, right, right. <laughs> you're Fitch. hideous. Yeah. <laughs> so let's do the reverse order. Let's have them raise their hands. <laughs> no. Let's do the reverse order. Item number three, research reveals that factors that predict recovery from the psychological trauma of 9-11 and similar events include less emotional control, and that one is science. Ah, That one is science. You win this time, Steve. Yes. Uh, There were other factors, and and the the fact is that uh, just what, what I think Jay said, that yes, if you express your emotions and let it out, that is better than it holding it in. So that then you know locking locking down those emotions. Although Rebecca, I think you um, confused it with another factor, and that is if you relive the event over and over again, that actually predicted poor recovery. And that's they were talking about that a lot afterwards. That you know the playing the jets smashing into the twin towers over and over and over again. That was actually a really good way to to maximize the psychological trauma of the event. And also the the recovery therapists. Who made you know forced people to relive their experience actually had a negative impact. So that's again where you have uh, a uh, this kind of kind of pop self help, but but actually these were therapists, therapists who thought that they knew what they were doing, but it wasn't evidence based, and what they were doing actually hurt people. They actually maximized the trauma by forcing people to confront what, the event over and over again. What's best is just to. Uh, to express your emotions about it, but don't force yourself to relive it over and over again. Another factor that was uh, predictive was whether or not you had an overall positive worldview or negative worldview. So you thought, yes, this confirms the fact that the world sucks. Then you were very likely to have a poor outcome, whereas if you had generally had a brighter outlook, you were able to brush off the trauma of the event much better. So that one, that one was in there for you, Richard. Thank, thank you very much. Well. So should I burst into tears now to feel better about losing? Yeah, don't hold, don't, don't Rebe- hold back. It's okay, never. Rebecca, because in three months you'll be right. That's yeah, true. that's right. <laughs> and good <All> looking. Right. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. a joke. Calm down. You're so lucky joke. I'm going to quantum forget that. <laughs> <laughs> you get lost in the edit anyway, so... Okay. 
that's true. After editing, it's going to be all great tits. So if we put <laughs> if we put a picture of Rebecca in our wallet, we're screwed. <laughs> what did I ever I, do I'm to saying you nothing. people? God, you all suck. Dang. I hate live podcasts. No negative worldview, Rebecca. Come on. At least when I'm at home, one. I can hold squatchy and yeah. cry silently while you continue. <laughs> It's true. All right, item number two. The Chemical Abstracts Service announced that on September 7th they recorded its 50 millionth unique chemical substance. The audience was initially bought this one, but after listening to the expert panel, a lot of you were convinced that this one was the fake. And this one is science. <laughs> 50 million is a very impressive number. <laughs> so, At least one of us wins. That's Jay, I think you're the only one this week. Yes, yes. I'm the only one that won. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to look shocked, but yes, you were the only one. I've been good. on an amazing losing streak. I can't believe yeah. it. And I was sitting here thinking, you know, if I don't win, at least I don't want all those other suckers to win. <laughs> so I'm feeling pretty good, actually. So there's not really much to talk about there, except there's a darn lot of unique chemicals out there in the world. Um, actually, you know, if you anyone here ever read or watch The Day the Universe Changed or Connections? Yeah, very good, very good. Um, and I think he makes a, uh, Burke makes a very good point in there that you know discovering new chemical substances has been absolutely critical to our technological advance. I mean, it's the kind of thing that flies under the radar of the, of the press and the public. They don't really talk about it that much. But figuring out a new way to put chemicals together has really transformed our society. And, and, and by reading those books or watching the programs that are based on them, you really look, wow, you know, chemistry really has created our modern society. So I'm not actually surprised that so much attention is being paid to cataloging unique chemicals and how much of an impact it's had on us. But, uh, you know, the thing, when, you, when we first talked about it, I was like, well, how do they know, that, okay, they can suppose that 50 million chemicals exist, but they're not actually making, scientists around the world aren't saying, we've created No, no, this is, these, these are cataloged. You have to make it, here it is, it's a unique chemical, it exists, here's so the structure. So that's they've all been created then? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, which means, item number one, a new survey shows that in the last 20 years, the number of working scientists who have been contacted by journalists about their research has decreased by about 50% is completely fictitious. Good job, Jay. Way to sniff that one out. Because the survey shows that it's actually unchanged that many, many scientists are being contacted by journalists, and the number has not really changed since about the late 1980s, which is, and the reason I included this in here is because that it runs somewhat counter to our subjective sense that science journalism seems to be getting worse in, in, the, uh, in the media at large, and Rebecca's right, a lot of major papers are shutting down their science departments, a lot of science stories are now being run by generalist journalists through generalist editors, and the quality has been going down. I think my interpretation of this, because I want to rescue my, my personal view, is that they may be contacting scientists, but still at the end of the day, the quality of the story is not what it used to be. Whatever helps you sleep at night. Right, right, right. That's good. But I have no objective data to back that up. Um, that's just that's just my sense. So uh, good work, Jay, and about a third of the audience. Good work, everybody. Now I am telling you <laughs> to understand that there are one or two microphones set up on the aisles, and this is now the SGU Q and A. The slide confirms it. The slide confirms it, so it's it's definitely true. So this is the part where you get to ask us questions. Hello, my name is Adam Yakovsky, and I'm. Uh, just a graduate student. Um, I have a question. If the 
If number one is false and the number of scientists being contacted about the news reports yes. has remained unchanged, why do you get stories like, for example, I think BBC, there was a news report where it said scientists create black hole and it's like, and the scientists said it's not true, it's really just sort of mathematically similar. Why do you end up getting so many science reports that are so factually there was a Excuse. great uh, Saturday morning breakfast cereal comic, which if you guys don't read that, it's hilarious and you should. And it was the science news cycle. Uh, do you remember what? It, yeah, it I blogged like? about it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, scientist says, yeah, in a petri dish, our this you know this treatment you know may have allowed 20% of these cells to survive longer. These cells you know with cancer to survive longer. And then the headline was, scientists cure cancer. <laughs> so the scientists. Complained to the journalist, and then the, the headline was like, "What scientist assaults journalist?" <laughs> and it was no, just, no, no, it was uh, <laughs> the scientist said, "No, no, it doesn't cure it. It just allows us to pursue a cure in the future." And it was scientists discover time travel, yeah. and then he goes back, and <laughs> the scientist just goes, "Fuck you!" And he's like, "Scientist sexually assaults journalists." <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, the, the, the serious answer is that I think, as we were saying, that the that as the media is going through this transformation from print to online and uh, trying to find a business model that works, that a lot of science journalists are losing their job and a lot of science journalism departments are being merged with the general. So you know, you I sometimes will see pay, see uh, serious science new or news articles being written by a reporter who six months ago was covering the food beat, you know, or. Uh, or was covering the animal shows. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just they're not science journalists and, and they don't have the training. And they're also their editor, they're going through a general editor, not a science editor, so there isn't anyone that has the sniff test, right, who could look at the story and say, this is BS, or you totally blew this, or did you, uh, is this really what the scientist said? Do you want to confirm that with him? Or maybe you should check with some other guy and not go with this one crank that you seem to be relying on. So it's just, you know, lazy, sloppy journalism. But there's also a lot of challenges to good journalism. So the, the, those challenges are still there, but the resources are dwindling. I think that's probably what we're seeing. But they're still oftentimes contacting the scientists. They're just still not getting the story straight. And you would think, though, that with the Internet, they would be able to contact the scientists much easier, too. Yeah, you, you would think so. But again, it shows they are contacting the scientists. It's still just not, they're just not putting it together. Or they're doing false balance when they really shouldn't be doing, putting things in perspective and context. So there's a lot of problems. Is there a competitive point to be made here? In other words, there's so many more outlets uh, for news that you have to get your news story out faster. Therefore, you probably can't take the time that you maybe could, you know, 10, 20 years ago in trying to get your, get your story out. You've got to get it out faster, and that might affect the quality. That you would think so, but I don't know if that factor's actually been changing over the last 20 years. I mean, it seems like a, the news cycle was always pretty fast, or at least in, in recent decades. So I don't know. That's a good well, no, question, I mean, but I don't know. The news have any cycle data. has sped up with the yeah. internet. I mean, yeah, probably. competing with blogs and all that. But there's also the issue the person who writes the article probably doesn't write the um, title. The, head, the headline, yeah. yeah. Headline. So, and, and the person who's writing the headline, their job is to grab your attention. Uh, yes. That's their single job. Goal that rewrites history of man. Right. Yeah. Great tits. Great tits. <laughs> We need 10 more seconds for Jada Reed to close out the show with a quick quote. This is a quote from Christopher Hitchens. Everybody knows who Christopher is, right? What can be asserted without proof can be dismissed without proof. Christopher Hitchens! Well, that was our live show from Nexus. 
And there actually were many more interesting questions, but we didn't have time to get them all into the podcast itself. I'd like to thank all the guys at the New York City Skeptics for helping us at the Nest to organize this very successful conference, which we're happy to say was sold out. And we definitely plan on holding more conferences in the future. I'd also like to thank Jamie Ian Swiss, who was the voice of the MC that you heard at the very beginning of the podcast, and all of the wonderful guests that made this a very successful conference. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 